Hey friends, welcome to the Reconstructing Prayer podcast, a one-season, short-run podcast series where I sit down with leading Christian intellectuals and I interview them on the intersection between theological deconstruction and spiritual formation. I'm Andrew Ray Williams, the author of a newly released book entitled Reconstructing Prayer Beyond Deconstructing Your Faith, published by Cascade Books. I'm really excited about today's conversation, so let's go ahead and get right into it. Today, I get to talk with my friend, the Reverend Dr. Rick Wadholm Jr., who is the Associate Professor of Old Testament at Assemblies of God Theological Seminary at Evangel University in Springfield, Missouri. He's got his PhD from Bangor University in Wales. He's an author of books, articles. He travels literally around the world to teach at seminaries and universities. And he's an all-around just awesome guy. So let's go ahead and get right into it. Well, Rick, welcome to the podcast. It's good to have you on, man. Great to be here. Well, in the intro, I kind of told people a little bit about yourself, but um, just for our listeners who don't know you, can you tell us a little bit about who you are, both personally and um, just professionally, kind of what are some highlights you have going on right now? Biggest highlight in my life right now is I have two granddaughters that were just born in the last couple months. Um, I'm nowhere old enough to do that, but you know, I'm there. I'm there. Yeah. That's awesome. (laughs) I'm super excited. One of them's actually moving to live uh, real close by us, and uh, I'll get to see them actually in a couple days here. Uh, Yeah. Married, four kids. I pastored for for 22 years um, in the upper Midwest and a lot of itinerant preaching, ministry, and churches of all sorts of different flavors. Mm. Um, Yeah. My my ministerial life. my church life has been pretty diverse. Uh, Mennonite Assembly of God, um, uh, Reformed Church of America, United Methodist Church, um, all while being ordained Assembly of God, but just the open doors for for ministry opportunity. Yeah, uh, did grad school up in Canada, so I got to be an international student, which maybe doesn't sound very international. <laughs> Um, but you know, it was, it was a fun experience being an outsider, um, outsider of sorts representing the U S and Pentecostalism, get those questions. Hey, and what do Pentecostals feel about this? And then I'd be like, well, let me answer for a half billion people on the planet. (laughs) If there's someone I like answering for that though, you're one of the people that I would trust. (laughs) I appreciate that. Yeah. 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 So I uh, did, and as, as Bio said, uh, PhD at Bangor, Wales, uh, glad to have studied alongside of you, spent at least a couple of my years of PhD studies. Um, yes, being able yes. Being to hang out in seminars with you. Um, yeah, so I uh, worked for a number of different schools. Um, so this year taught for a school in Mongolia, a school in Ethiopia, and a school in the Philippines. Mm. Um, besides in the U.S. So that's um, great, man. I yeah. I mean, I, you know, obviously, you know, we're friends. We've known each other for years. And, um, you know, you also are the are uh, a reader of my work. I, I really appreciate how often 
I'll shoot you a text and say, hey, Rick, do you mind giving me some perspective on this? And um, actually, you I don't know if you know this, but you were the first one to actually read the full manuscript hey, of right. my book, Reconstructing Prayer. So you gave me some great, great stuff that made it into the book, uh, which I really appreciate. Um, and so I, it makes me all the more excited to kind of talk about this, this first episode, um, having you on and talking a little bit about kind of the things that, you know, are really important to me and I know important to you too. Um, and love to get your perspective on it. So, you know, one of the first things I want to like to dive in is, you know, obviously you work in the church world, you work in, you work with university and seminary students and this whole talk of deconstruction is very much alive within these circles. And, um, First, for perhaps there's some people that are listening that maybe aren't aware of what deconstruction is or theological deconstruction is, um, can you give us a little bit of a of a working sense of what that is and what that phenomenon is and what your experience has been uh, working with university and seminary students uh, through in deconstruction? Yeah, this is um, and and you know it's it's a global phenomenon, not just something happening among our U.S. students. It's not just young people, though. I see it a little more pronounced in that college age young adult, um, really, in a lot of ways, up through maybe Gen Xers. Um, it's it's almost like it's a little encompassing of Gen Z, millennials, and Gen Xers. Um, at least it, it seems like it, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and certainly it's not everybody. Um, yeah, how, how do you categorize it? That, that's kind of the hard thing. It's a label that gets fixed to stuff and it seems fitting for a lot of us to maybe even describe. You know, I, I would describe some of my own movements um, in relation to the church and rethinking churchly life as deconstruction. But you get folks all over a spectrum, right? Yeah, you do. Um, people who have have um, deconstructed right out of faith, right? They yeah. they have just walked away, and I've got family that have done that, and uh, folks that I have discipled that have done that. Um, but then you got others that um, it's just pushed them to rethink what does it mean to be a follower of Jesus, right? In the twenty first century, what what does this look like? Um, uh, does it look like the church that we have currently inherited? Or is there something more? Um, I have tended to see it among those of evangelical and um, Pentecostal contexts. Though again, those are those are more of the majority of, of students that I engage, right? Yeah. Um, I, I would say an awful lot of uh, Catholics that I've known over the years, they were already deconstructed, like before this was ever a term. Um, yeah, an awful lot of them. Yeah, um, there was plenty that were very committed. So, yeah, where where do they fall on this? It's I, I just find it's almost more helpful always when when folks bring up things like this, whether students or church people. And I have these conversations fairly regularly, again with church people and students, uh, with pastors in training, even like what do I do with this? Uh, I find it best to just say, tell me your story. Right? I want to I want to hear your journey because. That matters more than a generic idea of what might it mean to deconstruct. So yeah, yeah, that's helpful. And so, so basically, what you're what you're helping us getting at is theological deconstruction is 
this way of inheriting the faith and beginning to look at it critically and thinking, you know, does this, does my experience of church life, does my experience of the people of God match with what I'm seeing in scripture, what I'm seeing throughout the centuries of what Christianity has been and beginning to call some of those things into question? Is that, do you think that's kind of a, a way of getting at it? Yes. Because this is, this is what I'm trying to help get at in my book is I see this across the church and I see this um, across kind of as a trend, at least in the Western church. And we're going to get to talk a little bit about your experience internationally. Um, but it seems like there's a lot of talk about deconstruction, but there's not a lot of voices to kind of help us mm-hmm. move into a place of reconstructed faith, a place that yeah. can help us think critically about things and can, and, and help build a, a framework that isn't a demolished faith, but is a renewed faith. So how have you kind of helped, tried to help um, people who are kind of wrestling with their faith? Like last weekend, I get a phone call uh, in the evening from from a guy who's really wrestling with some things. And um, well, let's let's turn to the scriptures. And I had him read a very specific passage, an extended passage, Mm -hmm. without me telling him, like, this is what this means or anything like that. I'm like, what does it seem to be saying, right? How does it seem to address this? And trying to wrestle with texts of scripture, right? Mm. Um, And then go back and let's read it again. Um, Somehow it's, you know, it's almost like an anchoring, right? Right. Um, it's not a undoing of the floating. Mm-hmm. Yep. It is a strengthening of the anchoring. Yeah. Um, a reaffirmation of the anchoring, maybe even providing extra anchoring or something. I don't know. Yeah. I like that because, you know, I think about um, when Jacob wrestled with God, I think mm-hmm. that's a good, a good biblical picture of what it means to, to really be in relation to God. Right. I think a lot of times in faith, we think that it's kind of this this very linear moving up and into more and more higher heights with God. And oftentimes, as we see in the life of the life of the patriarchs and even beyond, that this life of faith is oftentimes you come to a place where you have to wrestle with God. And scripture is one of those places that I think we need to learn that we go to not just to get easy answers, but to actually wrestle. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I know that a, a lot of what you've done, a lot of your work is that kind of wrestling. And so I love you pointing people to the to the biblical text, uh, not as a place to see easy answers, but mm-hmm. a place of really encountering God. Can you say right. more about that? Yeah. So and, and uh, the illustration you just gave is one that I've used a number of times uh, that mm-hmm. that image of Jacob in the night, all on wrestling with the angel of Yahweh, wrestling with God. Uh, He has a desire. He has something he's questioning. He never actually gets the answer, (laughs) right? Um, He never gets a direct answer. Instead, he walks away with a limp for the rest of his life. Yeah. His answer is actually in a disablement for Mm. the rest of his life. But his his having wrestled with with God and come away from it uh, means some form of blessing for his life, even in the midst of this pain, struggle, the reality of a, a disabled life. Like what a weird 
Like that doesn't even sound like it makes sense to us, but this is the way that our God seems to do many things, right? Mm -hmm. um, there, there's the, um, uh, I, I've been reading through Eugene Peterson's uh, Tell It Slant. Yeah. Um, wonderful pastoral uh, thoughts, right? Yes. Um, his, his, that whole series that he's written on. Anyways, the, the idea that, that God, like we have questions for God. The fact of the matter is our questions aren't really asking the right things. It's it's a way for us to encounter the living Christ who actually puts the questions to us, yeah. and we find ourselves marked by him. Um, so even taking up the language you were just saying, the encounter, right, to actually encounter the living God um, is transformative. Because if the problem is, if we give answers, it's an answer for something today. Yeah. It's, it's not the relationship of ongoing life of discipleship because discipleship is not about answers yeah discipleship is about following hmm. um, following a teacher the teacher and being made more and more in his image um, following him the way of the cross following him in uh, hopefully into his resurrection by way mm -hmm. of the cross so yeah and one of the one of the things that as you're talking you know came up for me is you know, I think about Job and, you know, his theologian friends who um, begin to theologize about his pain and about his suffering. And, and at the end of the book, it's Job doesn't come with a clear set of answers, but what he does come in, come away with is a, is contact with God. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of how the, it, the book kind of ends in a very strange way, Right. It ends with this, yeah, it ends kind of on a high note that God's kind of redemptive. But at the same time, it's like all this dialogue with his quote-unquote friends, and then this, this dialogue with God, or more like a monologue from God. Mm -hmm. And I think that somewhat kind of mirrors what, what I think we, Reconstruction can be, is that these questions can move us away from the questions themselves toward God, right? Mm -hmm. Because I think that we see a similar thing in the Psalms. Like, there's a difference between expressing doubt away from God and to God, because those doubts expressed to God can serve as a means by which we encounter the living God, right? Mm -hmm. Where right. all the all answers are found. And I think there's just kind of this biblical theme we find of that can help us talk to people and disciple them in ways. That again, don't give them pat answers, but actually help bring them to the source who is God. I mean, as you were pointing out, like we we have all our questions. God's not afraid of our questions. Um, he's not even afraid of our accusations, right? Uh, thinking through the Psalms. So one of the things that I, I do regularly do is take folks through passages of the Psalms, mm -hmm. right? And, um, and, and by saying take them through, not just like, okay, you need to read the Psalms. Like, uh, talk to me once you've read the Psalms. Like, no, no, let's look at some specific Psalms and let's read them together. So let's meet again next week. So what I want you to do, we're going to read this Psalm together right now, and we'll, we'll reflect on this throughout the week. I want you to be returning to this. Uh, let your prayers be shaped by this, the words of this Psalm. Um, and then we'll come together next week, talk a bit more about it, and let's talk about another Psalm. And, you know, the, again, this is a way of walking through Scripture together, 
rather than just saying you need to read this. Yeah, that's good. And I I can tell even in your answers and in kind of your relational personal approach that this this whole journey of questioning and wrestling is not something that you haven't been through. Because um, I think that when we have been through something like this, it's easy for us to begin to um, to help know what kind of ways that are helpful or unhelpful. Can you speak a little bit about perhaps your own journey of wrestling with some of the big questions of Christian faith and, you know, what factors influence this? Um, like how long did it last? What was its result? I mean, tell us a little bit about your own kind of wrestling. I don't know that the wrestling's done. Um, and that may sound strange for someone who, uh, you know, maybe there's folks who would listen to this and go, wow, this guy's a pastor and a professor who teaches pastors. <laughs> yeah, well, shame on me, I guess. Um, the the sense, though, of the wrestling. So even though th- this is not to say, oh, my faith, I don't I don't know what I believe anymore or anything like that. It's it's to say I'm very confident of God, of God's faithfulness, of his ability to care, provide. Um, I'm actually in a very good place for that. It's it is more of one of those issues in my my current walk. Even though you know you ask those questions, is God there? Is God listening? You ask those sorts of questions. My confidence tends to be more shaken in people, hmm. in God's people. Sometimes questioning whether these really are God's people, hmm. based on how they act or their utter lack of spirituality or faithfulness to the Lord, despite their leadership positions, despite their voices in the church or what have you. Um, so I would say, I I don't know that I'm done. Yeah. Um, I would say I've been reconstructed, but I would say it's, a, it's in process. Mm-hmm. Um, again, maybe it sounds strange. Um, I've had definite uh, extended periods of, Boy, wrestling with with issues of deconstruction, and quite frankly, some of those were were more so while pastoring, which is man, that's talk about a dangerous place um, mm-hmm. to to feel those wrestlings. Who do you talk to? Yeah, um, it, it can be kind of isolating. Um, it's not like you just tell your pastor friends, "Hey, you know, I'm wrestling with this," and they're like, "Uh, you're a pastor, <laughs> huh?" Yeah. Or your church folks, you, you know, you don't want to wrestle through those things from the pulpit, but neither do you want to just fake things. Um, but yeah, it's 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 this curiosity. And and through it all, you get, again, turning to the reliability of Jesus yeah, um, as foundational to everything. I don't have to have it figured out. I just got to be following Jesus and uh, listening to, to him. Yeah. Um, he is the living king, right? And so what, what does this mean for today? What does this mean for my obedience today to the Lord Jesus? Yeah. So yeah, I, I would say, I mean, many, many years, many, many years of this and phases up and down and up and down. Yeah. And um, I, I, one thing that I noticed, um, people tend to think that their um, their walk with the Lord is good when they feel like it's up and it's bad when it's down. I've come to recognize it's just part of walking the hills and valleys with Jesus. Yes. Um, his his path is not, uh, you know, it will be made a straight and level place. But for right now, it's kind of hilly and curvy, and uh, I'm not quite sure where we're going, but I'm just following. Yeah. I'm just following. 
Yes. Yeah, I like that image. And, um, you know, I live in the, <clears throat> the, the Blue Ridge Mountains. And uh, so I think that when I look at all the mount beautiful mountains around me, they're beautiful, but they are hard to trek. Mm-hmm. And I, I've similarly, in my own pastoral work, had times of, of, of difficulty um, with different parts of my faith. Now, like I say in the book, I've never called into question, you know, whether I love Jesus or follow Jesus, but just mm-hmm. the ins and outs, the difficulty with faith, with, with wrestling through big intellectual issues and, and, and how that affects, you know, things such as prayer life. Um, because when we begin to change our minds on fundamental issues about how God works in the world, and um, that begins to shift some of the ways in which we relate to God. And I know for myself, there was a season, especially um, where I was really wondering what how my spirituality uh, was going to be shaped, because mm-hmm. I had known how to follow Jesus in one way. That was kind of offered and handed me. And then when I began to change my mind on certain things, again, not not fundamental things in the Christian faith um, regarding, you know, the foundations that found the creed or whatever. It's it's more peripheral issues, cultural Christianity issues, Mm -hmm. ways of living in the church, ways of living with Jesus, with others. Um, I began to find some of the ways that I used to relate to God and, and kind of the spiritual practices I was given just weren't helping me mm-hmm. connect with God on, again, this very hilly journey that I was entering on. And this is one of the ways, one of the reasons, I mean, why you know my book was written on reconstructing prayer, because I think that prayer is foundational to this mm-hmm. and not just, again, um, the kind of praying that is just asking God for things. But the kinds of prayers that are meditative are, are connecting us and rooting us in the life of God in the midst of, of this struggle. Um, what's been your own journey of dealing with this, this intersection between prayer and wrestling with faith and wrestling with God? So while I was in seminary and pastoring, and I've been pastoring at that point, I don't know, maybe 13, 14 years, something like that. Um, wrestling with, with faith, um, and what, you know, just the pastoral vocation, like how, how do I follow Jesus well and lead others in following Jesus well, but wrestling with those, again, churchly questions, mm-hmm. right? What really matters? Um, I had an elective course I could take because I, I had already met certain requirements and I felt like the Lord was convicting me that I should do a specialized study in prayer. Mm. Um, so um, I actually uh, found a number of books to engage, uh, maybe not as normal reflective, but like Karl Barth's um, Reflections on the Lord's Prayer, um, Hansers von Balthasar, a uh, great Catholic uh, tw- 20th century theologian on prayer, um, and then uh, just reflecting, there, there was a number of other texts that I picked up um, as, as part of the sort of independent study on prayer. And then I went out, there's a, a friend of mine, this may sound like a, a strange title, he's a prayer evangelist. Basically, he travels around to churches helping people to pray better. Yeah. And uh, I know few people who pray like my friend. 
Hmm. Um, and I said, would you help mentor me in my life of prayer? Like I, I need someone, you know, um, pastors need mentors in all sorts yes. of different areas. Right. That's right. Um, and so I, I had this extended season and lasted about a year of a prayer mentor and working through these works, writing, reflecting on prayer, which, which was formative for me. Those have not been the only things, but that, that was at least a helpful place. Um, I have found this is, this is really over about the last year maybe a little longer. Um, I participate in daily prayers mm-hmm. through a podcast um, where in the morning prayers, certain scriptures are read, confessions are made, um, creed is recited, Lord's prayer is echoed. And I listen to this about a half hour every morning, 25 minutes, something like that. And I have found that that has enriched my prayer life by giving me regularity uh, by giving me the very words from scripture that I yeah. hear and allow to pour over me and then to fill my own day of prayer. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so that is quite frankly, it's, it's almost been like a reset for me. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's, it's been helpful that way. It's not, it's not like, Oh, well, this is my whole prayer for a half hour. I listen to a podcast. That's my prayer. Like, no, no. But it, it's, it's like it, it sets direction. Yeah, it puts me in a place also of hearing as a part of my praying. Mm. Right, I hear the word of God. I hear these things even as I echo certain parts. I participate in certain parts, repeating them, speaking them out loud. Um, I just find it helpful. Yeah, that's that's great. And honestly, I mean that in a lot of ways that touches on my own experience because I, I find that you know, like for instance, you know, one of the one of the things I talk about in the book is my wrestling through, you know, the the age-old question of how is God both good and great? How is he almighty and can do anything, but at the same time being good, right? It's something pretty much all of us wrestle with when it comes to difficult situations that we're, we find ourselves in. And does God care? And if, if he does care, why isn't he acting? Why isn't he doing something? And, and I find that, and I have found the same thing, Rick, that when I'm not finding the words to pray spontaneously. I can root myself in the words of others and root myself mm-hmm. in the words of scripture. Mm-hmm. And that's why contemplative prayer has been such a foundational practice for me that, you know, oftentimes I'll just, you know, I have, I have a list of probably 10 of my favorite scriptures that help center me in the life of Christ. And just repeating those over and over and over, just sitting in silence and closing my eyes, laying back, or, you know, I know we both enjoy the Book of Common Prayer, going to the Book mm-hmm. of Common Prayer and, and reciting prayers of confession, um, prayers of absolution, of forgiveness, of receiving Christ's forgiveness, um, of thankfulness and gratitude. These help us give words to things that we we probably couldn't come up, or at least are not our own souls at the time, right? Mm-hmm. And I wonder if these kind of practices of of relying on the words of others can help us when we are when we're not finding the words ourselves. Yeah, absolutely. That the communal aspect, which the Psalms work beautifully as, I mean, there's a reason that the church has referred to the book of the Psalms as the prayer book of the Bible, right? Like as, as a way of taking up, because it it gives us words as well that maybe we're afraid to say. Yes. Including like accusing enemies or saying, I wish they were dead. They would go down through Sheol. 
Yes. Whoa, whoa, whoa. <laughs> I, uh, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Like, whoa, whoa. I, okay. I, I want justice, but I, okay. Maybe, maybe if I'm really honest, that is my heart. destroyed. Yeah, yes. it is in my heart. Yes. And then I have to confess it. And then where that exposes me, right? It, it's like through these, uh, it also, so confession of righteousness. So like we often think of confession of sin, which mm-hmm. is true, but the Psalms also include things like confessing righteousness. Lord, you know that I've done nothing wrong. Like, well, actually, yeah. and then you're like, no, actually I'm confessing my righteousness before the Lord, things that I don't feel. Yes. And yet the Lord has declared and done. Yes. Um, so there's, there's this sense of vulnerability in praying with others that again, it shapes us to the community, which is shaped to God. Um, as opposed to just my own experience or my own language. It, it it offers me language that I may not have myself and ideas and the ways I want to hide mm. even in my prayers. Yeah. Yeah. And I love, I love what you're saying to implicitly too, Rick. You're saying, if I'm hearing you right, that it's not as if we're just reading for for instance, the Psalms, but we're actually allowing them to read us by the spirit of God, mm-hmm. that when we're praying these Psalms and when we're singing, even singing these songs, there's a sense in which we are giving voice to the biblical text, but at the same time, the spirit's pointing out the disconnect for us. Mm-hmm. And I know for my own, my own spirituality, that is so important because again, I've just realized like there are times that, I spontaneously pray. I definitely spontaneously pray when things with needs come up, when times when I just want to give voice to something and gratitude to God. But oftentimes I do root myself in the scriptures. I root myself in these ancient prayers. And because I I find that oftentimes that's one of the best ways for the spirit to work on me and help show some of that divergences, even my motives I may come to them with thinking I'm totally righteous, but then once I declare it about myself, there's a sense of check, like, well, is that exactly? And so I I love that. I think hopefully that if there's someone here listening and you're, you're kind of struggling in this and you're finding it difficult to connect with God, you're finding it difficult to connect with God in this season, perhaps take up the Psalms, perhaps Mm -hmm. take up um, these old prayer books and begin to make them our own, your own prayers and see what perhaps the Lord leads you. Something else I'd like to talk to you about, Rick, is, you know, I mentioned early on that not only do you work with people in the Western church, one of the the common assumptions is that this is kind of a a Western issue of deconstruction. Is that the case? No, it's not, uh, not again, in my experience with engaging folks internationally. Now, I I think, um, is it possible that because of globalization, it is a global phenomenon. Yes, I, I think that's totally um, that that plays into all of this. Um, and under under that understanding, that man, you know what? Uh, probably any of your listeners they have they have Facebook friends or whatever uh, Insta friends that are all over the planet. Yeah, in most time zones, right? Yes, um, or followers or what? Like. Okay, we th- this is unprecedented in the history of humankind. Yeah. So the sharing of ideas or um, thoughts that that cross the planet in an instant, 
and can become a shared ethos or, or idea. Wow. Uh, but I, I see it. I see it in my work in other countries. I definitely see it. Mm. Um, several conversations I had uh, with Filipino students, uh, several conversations I had with Ethiopian students just this last year were on precisely this, right? Um, some of it, it, again, it's almost generational. It's fascinating because some of the older students that I've had were talking about the young people in their church going through this. Yeah. And by young people, they kind of meant, you know, 40s and under. Yeah. Uh, and so they, they, they saw it and some of them were bemoaning it. And I said, well, this is an opportunity hmm. to allow for the questions and to help people to come to a firmer routine. You talk about this as an opportunity. I, fi- I think it is as well. I think it's an opportunity for for spiritual growth. I really do. That's been my own experience. Despite the fact that wrestling with big questions, wrestling with God in the midst of difficulty is painful, it can be disillusioning. At the same time, it really can be a catalyst for, again, what you said, a firmer rooting in Christ. And I know that's been my story, but I know it's not everybody's story. I know there's there's plenty of other people who have actually found it to be very destructive for their faith. How how can we almost as church leaders, can we partner with the spirit and truly making this an opportunity for, for spiritual formation? Yeah, again, I think uh, taking up of practices of the church, um, and, it, and it's hard because, you know, we, we belong to renewalist, revivalist, um, in the Western church, evangelicalism emerges as part of the British uh, North American revivalist impulse move, right? The mm-hmm. uh, 1700s, 1800s, these, um, the, these ideas about what it means for conversion, um, what it means for experience. And many of those things are wonderful expressions, um, sort of necessary additions to what was already happening in the life of the church. Um, great renewal, repentance, all sorts of wonderful things. The problem is an awful lot was set aside and has been. And over time, people aren't even aware of what the church is historically, right? So then Mm -hmm. um, the shallowness of what we do is it's usually driven by pragmatic concerns, what seems to work. And by what works means what gets the most people in church or what gets people to respond to altars or Um, what gets people to feel like Mm -hmm. they've encountered Jesus, not what are the daily practices? What are the weekly practices? What are the annual practices that shape us long-term for health? Um, And the church has held to these, right? Um, So I think uh, the, the ways in which I've tried to incorporate, for instance, into my classes, every one of my classes begins with a reading of part of the lectionary which mm-hmm. is just the the daily readings of scripture. Now, I don't read it all. It's the Psalms. I read the Psalms and we offer prayer. I also have, I begin every class with a time of silence, which may not seem like much, but yeah. in a world filled with uh, iPhones and, uh, oh, yeah. you know, uh, devices that we wear on wrists and, you know, like we are, we are connected 24 seven. Yes. Uh, that opportunity just for silence. Mm. Um, so there's been a few of those practices that I've tried to regularly incorporate into my classroom as I'm training pastors and church folks to borrow another phrase that uh, Eugene Peterson stole from someone else. 
<laughs> a long obedience in the same direction. Yes. Right. Yes. Um, so, and that, that requires a lifetime of commitment and practices. Yes. Yes. It, I think you're exactly right. Um, it's so easy, especially for people too, wrestling with questions, wrestling with faith to get, we almost get stuck in our brains, but I found that trying to engage another part of, of who I am, such as my body, such as my emotions, such it kind of helps indirectly affect the ways that I have kind of cornered off my spirituality just to be a, a mental exercise I'm stuck in that is causing me pain. Um, so like you said, some of the, some of the spiritual disciplines, such as silence, solitude, some of the ancient practices of meditation and prayer, like these are things that really can offer a lot for us when we feel like we're in this, this, this state of anxiousness or this state of anxiety about what it means to follow Jesus. In fact, sometimes what it just requires is actually following the ways of Jesus, the life of Jesus. That we find, like you said, silence. He regularly got away to be silent with his father. Mm-hmm. And I think that's instructive because with all the noise, with all the information, I think this is one of the things. We, we live in an age where um, we're finding conflicting information everywhere. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's, some of it seems to be undermining our faith. And so it's constantly coming out of out us. So when we actually can get silent, and actually try to be with the living God. It's not as if these questions disappear, mm-hmm. but they're put they're put in their proper context, right? Mm-hmm. And I think that that is the the difficulty of trying to help ensure that our theology and our spirituality are in dialogue. Mm-hmm. Yeah. One thing I'd love to hear, Rick, is just what you might say if there's someone listening today that. Um, stumbled upon this podcast and is is looking for not just easy answers, but someone that's that's gone ahead of them, that has been in the trenches of the real stuff of life with God and wrestled and is even currently, you know, loves Jesus, but but is finding it more difficult to follow Jesus than they ever thought. Um, what would be your exhortation to them to help Trent kind of continue to hold on to Jesus and help follow in the way so that they can make their way from a deconstructed faith to a more holistic reconstructed faith with Jesus? Yeah, the um, the need for community in that, even if so, even if you're a part of a church that you feel is toxic to your own soul you have the possibility of being a life-giving person there for someone else Hmm. as you find life in in community with others and to not cut others off, to not not become isolated. These become like, this is my personal struggle. Well, no, this is actually a communal struggle. Yeah. And, you know, I I think of the, I always go back to this, the prayer of Jesus that he gave to us, to his disciples, was not a forgive me, was not a give me my daily bread, right? Yeah. Was not a keep me from um, the, being tempted, whatever. It is us, us, our, yeah. we. So the, this sense of like, we belong together. We actually rise and fall together. Yeah. We stand in faith or fall in faith together. Yeah. Um, the, so 
man, don't don't let where you find yourself be the determining factor for your following of Jesus. Yeah. Right. Don't let the deceit of the enemy that you are all alone in this. Yeah. Um, have have the last word. Right. I love that. Persist. Yeah. I love that because I think you're exactly right. One of the ways we can so easily get off track is when we're isolated. Um, like you said, I mean, not all Christian communities are made equal. They're not. Mm-hmm. And some are actually um, detrimental to times mm-hmm. of, of wrestling. But there are plenty of other Christians and other Christian mm-hmm. communities that really do want to help people come to a fuller realization of how Christ can meet us in those times. Mm-hmm. And so I love that affirmation, that exhortation, that indeed that they not they don't have to be alone. I got the chance to read over Amos Young, you know, Pentecostal theologian, mm-hmm. got to read over his, um, um, what is it, Mission After Pentecost, I think was mm-hmm. the what he called it, um, his, his biblical engagement. So one of the things that struck me as I was um, chatting with him about it and reading over his manuscript was... Mm-hmm. The ways in which the spirit was, so the spirit broods over the waters in Genesis 1, but it is the breath or spirit, the wind that also deals with the waters in Genesis 9 to mm. recede the floods. But it was the spirit who, <laughs> the Lord says, uh, I will not let man contend with my spirit any longer, right? I'm done. Mm. Uh, the spirit both removes life and gives life. So all that to say, one, one of the things that has been striking me more and more over the last few years, this idea of the spirit always present in our deconstruction towards reconstruction, mm. the very spirit who strips away things that need stripped away is the very spirit who renews things and is doing that. So mm. I'm more and more as a pastor, as just follow Jesus, I'm looking for ways I see the spirit working in people's lives. Yeah. Even when they can't see it, they can't hear it, they they feel isolated. Um, I'm trying to see what the Spirit is doing and hear what the Spirit is saying. That is so good. That's so good, Rick. And actually, maybe I just won't share this podcast with others and I'll just steal that for my own preaching because that'll <laughs> preach, my friend. That's good. That's really good. Well, Rick, thank you so much for your time, bro. I know that this thank has you. been really good for, for me, for my own soul, but I know for many others as well. So again, thanks for being on, bro. Thanks for the book, man. Absolutely. Appreciate it. (laughs) Thanks so much for listening to episode one, where I talk with my friend Rick Wadholm Jr. If you are interested in going deeper, I have a whole book on these ideas and actually how to begin to reconstruct faith and move beyond deconstruction to a more full, holistic spirituality It just came out with Cascade Books. You can get it on Amazon or pretty much anywhere books are sold. Really look forward to some more podcasts to be dropped in the coming weeks. They're going to be dropped every single week. So make sure and subscribe to the podcast. And really looking forward to sharing more conversations with future guests. Thanks so much, everybody. And we will catch you next episode.